Ever wondered what it would be like studying Spanish at the University of Oxford? Sit in on my conversations with Spanish tutors to find out what's so fascinating about the literature they teach, why they love teaching it, and why they think you might love it too. Hi, Daniela. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, fine. Thank you. How have things been now terms started up again for you? So far, so good. So I'm Daniela Omlo. I'm the Spanish fellow at Lincoln College, but I'm also a lecturer at Jesus College. I have a role in the faculty as associate professor. And I mainly, for my research, look at modern Spain. So literature coming out of modern Spain. In particular, I'm interested in the 20th and 21st century. Brilliant. So what's the name of the text we'll be speaking about today and who wrote it? So the text I've chosen is called Nada, which is short and sweet. <laughs> it's a novel and it's written in the first person by an author called Carmen Laforet. And what's the basic plot? So as the title might already tell us, there isn't necessarily that much of a plot to it. The main plot consists of um, the, the narrator, uh, a young woman called Andrea, coming to Barcelona to um, study at university. And other than that, it, it's mainly about the, the people she meets, about kind of reconnecting with her family with whom she um, lives and uh, things like friendship and so on. And so why did you want to talk about this particular text? One thing that I think is really interesting about this text is actually that what the narrator in some ways is experiencing um, also corresponds a little bit to what any kind of undergraduate goes through because, you know, she's, she's moving to go to university. She's away from, um, you know, where she's grown up for the first time and she's sort of trying to figure out who she is, what she wants to do and, and in a sense what it means to be an adult as well I think. So when and where was the text written and what was happening at the time? Laforet said that she started writing when she was 22, she was born in 1921 and in the end the novel was published in 1945 although it won a very prestigious prize uh, prior to publication even though the Spanish Civil War had finished, um, you know, and had ended in 1939, it was of course very much still um, something that affected everyday life in Spain. And we can also think about the fact more globally that um, World War II only uh, ended in 1945. So uh, by all means, it was a time that uh, in world history was um, very tumultuous and lots of things were happening. And so what sort of literature and maybe specifically novels were being written in Spain at this time? And how does this novel compare to those? Well, I think we tend to think of um, the Civil War as a, as a big sort of break in, in the history of not just Spain as a nation, but also Spanish literature. So, I mean, I'm always generalising, but let's say before the Civil War, um, you know, literature was overall quite experimental, you know, the avant-garde was uh, very active in Spain as well. Um, in general terms, people tend to think of the text being written after the civil war within Spain, so not by writers who had chosen to go into exile, as relatively unexciting, let's put it that way, so uh, quite sort of conventional. Um, and while at first glance it's easy to think the same thing about Nada, I think actually when, when we take a closer look, it's, it's quite a bit more exciting than that. Um, 
and it's it's trying to offer a kind of different view of reality. She's very good at capturing not just the facts of society and the world around us, but but also our kind of emotional response to it. Definitely. And I think we'll talk a bit more about that uh, later when we get into some detail on the text. Um, but first, let's move to talk a bit about the author Lafayette and her works. So Nather is her first novel, I think. So what else did Lafayette go on to write? And how does Nather fit into the trajectory of her time as an author? I think in many ways, uh, Lafayette was unlucky because her first novel was um, so critically acclaimed and successful that um, what, what, what she continued to write was, has often been overlooked. Um, and she wasn't very prolific. So there's a tendency to sort of think of her as a, as a kind of one day wonder or something like that. But she was obviously someone who never stopped writing and it, it was really important to her uh, to the extent that she actually um, abandoned all the, the kind of degrees that she started at university, never, never finished them and, you know, and, and instead took up writing full time. So um, we have a bit of a skewed view of her development, I think, because funnily enough, her first novel was so, um, seemed to overshadow everything that followed. Mm. And because she's not that prolific, do we have any idea which authors and other texts might have influenced her work? Or are we kind of in the dark when it comes to that? Well, I mean, if, if we look at Nada, the first thing we see is actually a, a quotation um, that's taken from a poem. So interestingly, she's um, using a poem written by Juan Ramón Jiménez, who uh, sort of fits in with what I was saying about um, the literature produced in Spain before the Civil War. He, he was very much um, associated with the avant-garde or even the precursor of that, in, in that he was seen as a, the prime poet to be producing pure poetry in Spain, um, and therefore was a big influence on the avant-gardes that, that followed, followed him. Um, so that's interesting because he's someone who, who went into exile and obviously, again, one would think that perhaps just the, their modes of writing would be so different that um, that wasn't necessarily something that was going to be a lasting influence on her. And I think the other thing that is maybe not made explicit, but that we come to think about a little bit in the novel is, is this kind of existentialist outlook that sometimes um, seems to be simmering in, in the background, really. Great. So let's move on now, I think, to look at the text in a bit more detail. Could you tell us a bit more about who narrates this text and what can we say about this narrative voice? So the narrator is a young woman, Andrea, who's been spending the time of the civil war on an island which isn't specified in the text. And she arrives in Barcelona to go to university. She has some funding for that and she's staying with her family, um, but not her parents because um, we're told she, she's an orphan, um, but her aunt and her uncles and her grandmother in a house that she has very fond memories of from before the civil war, but actually, uh, you know, quite some time has passed since her last being there. 
because we have a first person narrator, everything is filtered through this narrator, who's also to an extent our protagonist, Andrea. So by definition, things will be more subjective than if we had a third person narrator. As a result, it also means that we're not completely in the know when things are happening. A lot of the time, the narrator will report conversations and so on that she's overheard. So she may have missed something. Um, and as the reader, we have to uh, make that imaginative leap in the same way that the narrator has to. And we also get direct access to her thoughts, of course, because she is a first person narrator. So we get a good sense of her inner world. And a lot of the time, the descriptions of what she sees or what she observes and witnesses or possibly takes part in are, are filtered through her state of mind. So they're quite subjective in that way and sometimes even, even poetic and can be, can be quite dense. Uh, even though I would say that the language isn't over the top, the language is more quotidian perhaps. And when you're reading the novel, I think you do get the sense that the narrator, Andrea, is maybe a bit lonely and is also searching for a sense of self. And I wondered how the idea of loneliness and a search for identity is explored in this text, in your opinion. I think one important thing to remember is that Andrea, at, at the point where she arrives in Barcelona, is, is very young. So she's sort of in a limit, she, she finds herself a little bit in limbo because obviously she's no longer a child, but in some ways she also doesn't quite fit into the world of adults. And in terms of her search for an identity, I think she comes up against expectations of society, of her family and so on that previously maybe she hadn't considered. I think she arrives with a kind of feeling of elation in Barcelona's thinking she can be anyone she wants to be. And then she suddenly finds that she comes up against lots of stereotypes or, or conventions or expectations that are to do with the fact that she's a young woman, um, that she is of particular social class and so on, that probably hadn't crossed her mind before then. And as you say, she's a young woman um, and we see most of the story through her eyes. Um, so what can we say about maybe a female gaze or a female perspective in the novel? I think that's one of the most interesting things about it. Um, the fact that we have a, a female narrator um, and that this is not a female narrator who maybe fulfills any of the kind of stereotypes that we might have. She doesn't seem like a sort of woman that is conservative and Catholic and so on. And she's a She's an intelligent, um, curious um, person, but also someone who's, who's quite damaged in some way, um, even though we, we're not entirely sure why, but she's vulnerable and at the same time, she, she has a hunger for life. So, um, so I think that makes her really interesting. And what she sees, of course, in, in the world uh, post-war in Barcelona uh, is that, um, men are allowed to behave differently to women and that her freedom is actually curtailed by the fact that she is a woman. Mm. And I was wondering whether you think the concept of masculinity is also explored in the novel because Andrea's two uncles, Roman and Juan, feature quite prominently in the novel and they're quite a foreboding presence in the house. 
Yeah, so I think men in a, in, a, in a sort of similar way to women come up against uh, certain expectations. So I think the two uncles um, haven't emerged from the war as these kind of victorious fighters that, that we might imagine them to be, and, and they really struggle with that. And one way in which they try to take control is often through violence. So violence seems to be a language um, that is acceptable in men and a way in which they try and assume control over events that perhaps aren't really in their control. And so when they're trying to um, place themselves above the female members of the household, I think this is often to do with the fact that that's the only way in which they they can sort of overcome their own impotence within that society. And I think from my perspective, maybe the most powerful relationship in the novel is between Andrea and her friend Enna. And when I read the text, I got the impression that Andrea was attracted to Enna or maybe even in love with her. And I wondered whether there's a queer reading of Andrea's character. I think that's a really interesting reading and a queer reading is certainly possible. What I find a little bit um, less convincing about that is actually that when it comes to female friendship, that's the first thing that critics um, try and think about. Um, um, their friendship is very intense. And I think what's also interesting, or what we should bear in mind, is that in literature, we don't have an abundance of depictions of female friendship. So in that sense, actually, the novel, the novel of, offers us something unique. I think it also speaks to their age. I think as a woman, I don't know, I think we can think of sort of friendships and adolescence that just have that intensity um, of almost a kind of love relationship without necessarily having, having, you know, having to, so perhaps also, but I mean, not, not, not necessarily having to have any kind of erotic underpinnings. I think the other thing that's interesting is that because we have Andrea as a narrator, we always see Anna through her eyes. So the view of Anna is actually, we can't sort of verify it independently from the way in which Andrea perceives her. So the fact that she really idealizes Anna, because in some ways Anna is everything that she's not. Um, they are a little bit like day and night. Anna's popular, she's beautiful, she's rich. Um, that's also a fantasy, which I think is really interesting. So in some ways, I think Andrea projects a lot onto Anna that maybe tells us more about Andrea's own desires of who she would like to be or, you know, a, a sort of fantasy she has of, of, of being, which again, I think when we're at, at that threshold between childhood, adolescence and, and adulthood, I think is not uncommon. I think you just described brilliantly that intensity um, that exists in the friendship between Andrea and Enna. And I think more generally, there's quite a claustrophobic atmosphere, I'd say, um, in the novel and specifically in the house um, where Andrea lives, where a lot of the novel takes place. Why do you think Lafayette chooses to build this sort of atmosphere in the novel? I think one reason why she's doing that is to emphasise the fact that Andrea does feel very lonely. And by creating such a stifling and claustrophobic atmosphere, I mean, partly I think perhaps she's, Laforette is conveying 
what what society was like you know in the wake of a, of a of a very bloody war and so on but on the other hand i think it's very much about andrea's personal experience the fact that she doesn't seem to sort of be in sync with any any of the of the people she lives with she doesn't really understand them and they they don't understand her and 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 the the kind of environment also doesn't live up to to her expectation her almost her 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 dreams of when when she was there as a child and it was this sort of wonderful place that she wants to return to so in a sense symbolically you could also say that it just shows us the failure of or the impossibility of returning to a sort of nostalgic place that perhaps only exists in our memory and as we've touched on already, um, Andrea's family struggles for money a lot throughout the novel. And this at least appears to contrast to uh, the families of the friends um, that Andrea falls in with at university, like Enna's family. Do you think the idea or the concept of social class and wealth is explored in the text? Um, I think money is important because it's an everyday worry for Andrea's family. It's, it's not an abstract concept. It's really about how to pay for the next meal, what happens if, um, you know, someone's ill and so on. So it's a sort of household concern. And, and there are moments when Andrea almost self-harms, we, we could probably say, because she starves herself in order to be able to afford other things. Um, that that Anna can easily afford and so on. She wants to sort of keep up with what the others are doing, um, but she also gets a sort of pleasure out of doing that. So so that's probably an aside. Um, and for for Anna's family, it's it's just simply not something that they ever have to think about. Um, and and I, I think another interesting facet we we are shown uh, is that a lot of the children of the Barcelona bourgeoisie so the the sort of peers of Andrea at university and um, tend to be able to literally afford a quite liberal uh, mindset they're sort of non-conformist and they they like to sort of play the, the re revolutionary um in their political ideals and their their outlooks when it comes to literature and so on but actually in the end they all have that safety net of um knowing that their families are well-connected and wealthy. So it's just a kind of posturing that, that they are able to adopt that Andrea observes without really, well, I think she, she lays bare quite, quite well through her detached observation, what is actually going on. Whereas these um, fellow students of hers tend to think of themselves as, as really being very um, daring in what they're doing. And I think, like you say, because Andrea spends a lot of time observing people and we're kind of party to her internal thoughts, um, I think in terms of the way externally she expresses herself, silence does feature a lot in the text. And I wondered if you could speak a bit more about the significance of silence and maybe some of the different ways that that's conveyed in the text and for different purposes. Well, it's very difficult to talk about silence in the text because, of course, it's something that in some ways isn't there. But I think it's an absence that becomes a presence. So the one way in which silence is marked in the text is fragmentation. So the fact that we have kind of glimpses or almost 
snippets of conversations or um, perceptions or observations, but we don't ever have a kind of 360 degree view of something. So there's an act of sort of active reading that's necessary in order to sort of put things together. A lot of the silence is also to do with things that people don't want to talk about because they don't like to remember them necessarily, or they have accepted that in the society that they live in are not deemed to be things that should be talked about. So some of that is to do with the war, but some of that is also to do with interpersonal relationships and how they develop on the backdrop of a, of a sort of different political system, perhaps. And thinking more now about the impact of the text in the literary world, how did this text shape literature written in the Spanish language going forwards? Probably the most important influence it had was that women writers often felt that they had nowhere to look, but some of them described the discovery of Nada as a kind of epiphany. Carmen Martin Gaita said that it was really great for her to discover Andrea as this protagonist because she wasn't modelled on the, the herons that particularly female writers were encouraged to identify with in what was called the novela rosa, a kind of romance literature, we would call it nowadays, that was meant to be good for women because it would prepare them for marriage and, and um, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't make them sort of <laughs> stray from, from expectation. And I think in that sense, Nada showed women writers what it was possible to do, that they didn't have to try and write in a particular mold, that they, they could do other things. A big part of studying Spanish at Oxford is looking at literary texts in a lot of detail. So I'm asking Daniela to pick out an extract from the novel so we can analyse it a bit more closely. So this is um, an extract from quite early on in the novel. Um, Andrea has just arrived at her family's house and she, she decides to, to take a shower after her travels. Parecía una casa de brujas aquel cuarto de baño. Las paredes tiznadas conservaban la huella de manos canchudas, de gritos de des desesperanza. Por todas partes los desconchados abrían sus bocas destentadas, resumantes de humedad. Sobre el espejo, porque no cabía en otro sitio, habían colgado un bodegón macabro de besugos pálidos y cebollas sobre fondo negro. La locura sonreía en los grifos torcidos. Empecé a ver cosas extrañas, como los que están borrachos. Bruscamente cerré la ducha, el cristalino y protector hechizo, y quedé sola entre la suciedad de las cosas. So, this bathroom seemed like a witch's hut. The blackened walls preserved the traces of hooked hands and screams of despair. Everywhere, the chip walls were opening their toothless mouth, oozing with humidity. Above the mirror, because there wasn't space for it anywhere else, they had put a macabre still life of breams that were pale and onions on a black backdrop. Madness was laughing from the twisted taps. I began to saw very strange things, like those people who are drunk. Abruptly, I switched off the shower, that protective and crystalline spell 
and there I remained alone amongst the the dirtiness of things. Mm. And thinking about language and imagery in this passage, what sort of language is used? Is there anything you want to pick out in particular? Well, we tend to think of this text as realist, but actually when we look at the language used, it's not an objective language that we would use to describe a bathroom. So a lot of it is almost taken from um, the language of fairy tales. So if we look at brujas, witches, um, even these sort of um, traces of hands, the imprints that she talks about, the fact that they're hooked and so on, it's, it's, um, it's either kind of fairy tales in the sense of a, a kind of hor the horror or a sort of haunted house or something like that. It's very kind of visual as well at the same time and speaks to the senses. And the fact that I think she draws on the language of fairy tales is, is quite interesting because, like I said, Andrea's kind of at the threshold between adolescence and adulthood. And sometimes when she reaches for a way in which she wants to describe something positive or negative, I think that's the kind of language that comes to her intuitively. And, and to many of us, it would have, I think, because you know our childhood reading also shapes perhaps how we, how we see the world and, and how we think about it. And you said that this passage is quite visual. Are there any images that you want to pull out from the passage in particular um, for us to look at and think about in a bit more depth maybe? So there's a lot of darkness that is created here. So if we look at Las Paredes Tiznadas, but also um, the bodegón, so there's a kind of still life that she's describing, Sobre Fondo Negro, that is kind of mainly kept in dark colours. I mean, there's a kind of contrast between these fish that are kind of white, presumably or kind of light coloured, because she talks about them as being pale. Um, so I think that contrasts other, other parts in the novel where the family of Inna is kind of seen through this almost golden light. You know, they all have kind of golden flaxen hair and so on. And here, um, like I said, it's, it's to do with Andrea's perception of the world. I mean, she doesn't, when she arrives at Kayaribao, her family home, it's, it's not how she remembers it. There's sort of, there's furniture everywhere. It's this kind of dark place when in her memory, it was something quite different, almost enchanted. And here, it, she retains that idea of it being enchanted, but almost bewitched, like, like a, you know, it, it's been cursed or something. It's, it's very kind of dark and negative. Throughout the passage, there are these repeated references to parts of the body and bodily functions. So we have hands, mouths, there's sweating, oozing, screaming, smiling. Why does Laforette describe the bathroom in this way? I mean, one easy way to think about it is that it, it's, it's personified. I mean, it, it's almost like Andrea feels a presence because later on she says, in contrast to that almost, that she, she re remained behind on her own, quede sola. But here it's almost as if, as if there are living things surrounding her. They're all closing in on her, you know. Um, and I think that that's neatly conveyed by using these kind of bodily bodily images. So how is Andrea's loneliness or her feeling out of place explored in this passage? Well, nominally she's not lonely because we 
you know, she's just joined her family. She's not living by herself or anything like that. But if we look at this passage, it ends with quedé sola entre la suciedad de las cosas. And she's just taken a shower. So we would expect a kind of reference to cleanliness or something like that. But what sticks out is that she's all, all, all on her own, sola. And then what seems to stick to her is la suciedad de las cosas. So the kind of dirt. Um, rather than the sort of refreshed, renewed um, self that she's, she's, you know, she's just taken a shower in order to cleanse herself of anything, but she doesn't seem to be able to rid herself. And maybe that dirt is kind, kind of, is going to stick to her. And in some ways, she's also out of place because she's trying to be something that doesn't seem to befit this environment. So there's no harmony between the, between the environment and herself. And thinking now about narrative perspective in the passage, so like the rest of the novel, this is narrated in the first person from Andrea's perspective. Um, and towards the end of the passage, she says that she starts to see strange things like drunk people do. How does Lafayette present the effect of the house on Andrea in this particular passage? Well, it's interesting that she says like drunk people do. So she's aware of how a drunk person would perceive it, but she also makes it very clear that that's not her case. So that then almost leaves the reader in a kind of double bind because the reader is trying to think, well, if she's not drunk, why would she, why would she describe it like that? So I think it really makes us sort of double back and turn, turn towards Andrea and makes, makes us think about what is going on there? I mean, what, what's going on in her head? Even la locura sonreía en los grifos torcidos. I mean, it seems quite matter of fact, but then when we, when we look at what it actually means, that can't be a factual description of, you know, the kind of tabs in the bathroom. So is this a projection? You know, is, is Andrea trying to tell us something about herself by describing this place in a particular way? So rather than saying how she feels, you know, she feels threatened, she feels alone, she feels like she doesn't belong there and she's disappointed and it's not what she's expected and all these sort of feelings compounded. Actually, Laforet, in a way that's perhaps more poetic, offers us a description which makes us think that very obviously it can't be a, a kind of description of how things are. So perhaps it's a more subtle way of telling us what Andrea is feeling instead of having to say, you know, she felt this or I felt this at this moment in time and perhaps more effective and more impactful. How significant is this passage in the context of the rest of the novel? As you said, it, it comes quite close to the beginning. I think it alerts the reader to the fact that all is not what it seems, including our narrator. So in that sense, it's significant because it, it, it appears early on in the novel. It, it sort of sets the example. On the other hand, you could also think of it as perhaps foreboding because Andrea's time in that household is not going to be a happy one. So in many ways, those initial feelings are later on confirmed um, in a way that is not so gothic as it is here. Thinking about applying for modern languages at uni? 
Well, keep up to date with the latest episodes of the podcast and find out about our upcoming outreach events by following us on Twitter at OxMML underscore schools. You might also like to take a look at our Modern Languages blog, Adventures on the Bookshelf. This podcast was created by Professor Ben Bollig, produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and brought to you by the Sub-Faculty of Spanish at the University of Oxford. Special thanks goes to the tutors that participated and the Taylor Institution Library. <laughs>